This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up? I'm Poppy Ajuda, and welcome to The Power in Us, a podcast where I use the songs of my debut album to propel into conversations around feminism, social change, mental health, empowerment, and so much more. So stay tuned for big chats with inspiring people. We can change This song is Whose Future, Our Future, and I'm speaking with Emma Dabbery. For any listeners that don't know, you're an academic, you're an author, you um, wrote What White People Can Do Next and Don't Touch My Hair. And you went to or are at SOAS. So I went to SOAS a long time ago, but I was teaching at SOAS until quite recently. I was a teaching fellow in the Africa department. And you did your PhD in identity politics of mixed race bodies? I'm currently finishing my PhD at Goldsmith. Oh, okay. Um, And um, it's, mm. so yeah, it started off, like I knew I was going to do something around like the racial category Mm. of mixed race. Mm. Um, But when I did, I wasn't sure exactly what I was doing. And in the first year when I was doing my literature review, I noticed this very like pronounced tendency when anybody was talking about quote unquote mixed race. I really don't like the term, but um, I'm putting those big quotes yeah. around it. Um, I realized whenever, whenever anybody was talking about mixed race, like within the scholarship, it was always about identity and it was always about experience. Mm. And when I'd say to people, oh yeah, I'm studying like mixed raceness, they'd be like, oh, mixed race identity or mixed race experience, mm. almost this, like default words that people use. Interesting. So then I was just like, why is that? Yeah. Um, and it led me to actually, what I'm doing now, what I'm in the process of finishing is trying to like create an entire new kind of structure of knowledge for how we talk about race which yeah. would then have an impact on, you know... People the, of mixed heritage. Yeah. That's so interesting. Talk to me about it a bit, the, the PhD and what, what you're kind of... What I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Like, the thing is, like, it actually gets quite... Um, theoretical. Theoretical, yeah. and it's very much, like, kind of, like, uh, within, kind of, like, sociological, like, discourses and, and, and trying to kind of... Well, I'm looking at mixedness in a different theoretical framework to the one that it's normally um, explored via. So it's usually explored via... I'm not going to go too, too deep into this because okay. I feel like if people aren't versed in these literatures, which it's most alienating. people aren't, yeah. they're going to be like, what is she talking about? <laughs> um, but yeah, most of it is kind of done under the, the construction of identity. And I actually look at something called like new materialism, mm. which um, kind of looks at um, subjectivity in a very different way mm. to identity. Yeah, That's such an interesting 
things to talk about because I think university can be quite an alienating space for anybody who does hasn't engaged in those words or those yeah, concepts yeah, completely. And, yeah and I and when I came out of SOAS I had all of these big words and yeah. no one could understand what I was saying yeah. and, I was trying to, and I, obviously you've written books and you've had to work out how to reframe them in a way that is accessible yeah. for like everyday people that aren't wanting to engage or haven't had the chance to engage in like the academic work that would build that understanding mm-hmm. um and how do we have these conversations in a way that is engaging and isn't isn't alienating because you must have to go through that process when you're writing books when you're you know writing things that you want people to be able to connect to on a personal level as well yeah so in my writing I really try and like translate um some of these more like theoretical um ideas and this language of academia that can be yeah Mm. um you know exclusionary um to yeah just translate that into um I guess stories and information that are that, that that are more accessible i think it that that is the conversation about how to have have the meat of everything yeah. but not to commercialize in a way that then doesn't actually get to the root of the problem yeah and i i i, I do find it like like so in so many ways like social media is like incredible for um you know disseminating and making widely available and popularizing ideas that were not accessible to to um, Mm. kind of uh, large groups of people or generations of people. However, I feel like sometimes it's um, ideas that are, you know, not like binary. They're not just like, you know, good or bad Mm. or like or, or, or black or white. They actually have like complexity and nuance. And that gets lost in their social media presentation Mm. and can lead to forms of kind of extremism or like just very well it takes away the nuance binary understanding of the world which actually kind of further perpetuates lots of the issues that Mm. we're trying to challenge in the first place and I often think that you know there's there's thinkers and activists and scholars who are actually like very expansive expansive and generous in their thinking but their ideas get boiled down to you know because they just have quotes that are like taken Mm. out of context and I see people using the quotes and I'm like if you literally read like the few sentences that precede Mm. that quote like in the context that it that 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 it that it comes from you wouldn't you couldn't even use it in this way but Mm. often that that context is missing and the quote has just been you know extracted and is just being kind of yeah used in a way that I think is very much um is often at odds with the context that it was like created in or the purpose it was meant for yeah and I guess that's partly what you've spoken about before in terms of like knowledge and information and actually Mm -hmm. like well, that was from Angela Davis. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I was quoting she's her. Icon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm always quoting her. But that that difference between actually engaging in the thing and finding the nuance and and actually just reading a quote and and attaching well critical like critical faculties as well like so when I was like first studying like there wasn't even really like the 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 internet like do you know what I mean okay, there was the internet but not there wasn't social media and, like, so I'm a hundred years old <laughs> no 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 I'm way older than people tend to think but like so when I was like an undergrad undergraduate like the internet wasn't something that I like engaged with I wouldn't that, like yeah. Google 
like something yeah. in a Wikipedia would come up, like, you know, it wasn't, and it wasn't like that. And there weren't kind of big conversations about, you know, like decolonization or mm. these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Like the, these conversations just weren't happening in, the, in popular spaces like that. So really all of my sources were the dusty old books mm. in SOAS library. But like, so you'd read the books and then you'd have to distill and extract mm. what was relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually like is a way of, like, I, I mean, I detest it. Like mm. I, I found it so like difficult and challenging, but it's very different to, um, you know, somebody else doing it for you. Quote, yeah. And then that quote, like being widely circulated, mm. you know? So it just develops your critical faculties in a way that it is different to um because I think people have to like learn how to think critically mm. rather than just um and it's not something that is taught critical thinking isn't taught it isn't taught no, to certainly not taught. It, to engage in that on that deeper level that means yeah. I guess it's a difference between reading something and then writing an essay about it yeah do you know yeah, what I mean yeah. because in order to write something about anything you actually have to put it into your own words and you have to actually be able to consume the information and apply it if that's your life or, or to someone else's life or to yeah. a situation and that's I think where the critical yeah so, thinking element and, happens and I, I see people you know you see things that are written and like published online and elsewhere and I think about like when I submitted work on some of these topics and also I taught for a long time also when I was grading them myself I'd be like if somebody submitted these things, you might be like, sorry, what is your, what's the source? Like, where is this, where have you gotten this from? Because it's objectively wrong, you know? <laughs> so there's stuff that is just, um, yeah, I just read stuff that's objectively wrong, but there's, it's out there and it's spreading. So I find that quite worrying. Because I think there's a conversation about accessibility and mm. you can't give someone like a, a hundred page reading. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I used yeah. to argue with people all the time at uni about it like especially like upper class people who maybe had the vocabulary to engage in this work and I was like what is the point if my mum couldn't read this yeah, like what is yeah. the point as like anthropologists in engaging in in work that is not accessible to anyone else mm -hmm. because what are you actually trying to do in terms of sharing culture and understanding about the world I think some of the ideas are not um it's not that they're ex exclusive because they're couched in academic language but I'm often dealing with like the Framework, like frameworks from other cultures, other linguistic worlds, other constructions of reality that is just quite challenging and complicated to explain to people, not because it's like, um, not because it's like exclusionary in some way, but just because it's like very different mm. parameters of reality to, um, to, to what one might be used to. So I don't know, maybe it's like fostering spaces where people have... Um, the, the 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 time and the space to you know think about stuff deeply so you know but i feel like who's going to invest who's going to invest in that in this in this mode yeah <laughs> how are people going to have the time to do that you know yeah. and the fabric of society is literally like but i think that's integrating <laughs> i think that speaks to like yeah the the, like a very like reactionary culture that we're in today yeah it's and wild but i i think that that is happening but there'll be a reaction to that mm -hmm. and I think people are already because I think we're we're in an era of a very strong like identity politics focus mm -hmm. everything's about the labels of your identity because mm -hmm. you're trying to express who you are in a way that has previously been used to oppress you mm -hmm. and so then you're doing that so I even I remember when the term like woman of color 
came about. And because as per a person of mixed heritage, I felt like who my identity as a person in terms of my race was always in questioning or people would project what they felt like it was, depending on if they were white or black. It felt like a, a term that I remember when it first came out, I was like, am I a woman of color? Mm -hmm. Like, am I allowed to be a woman of color? Because like everybody has a different opinion of what my, who I am, mm -hmm. depending on who's, who's there and, and, and depending on their life experiences of if they want to in include me or exclude me from a certain group, basically. Yeah. Um, and then the idea of queerness and the idea of like all of these things that I think I got to a point where I was like, I actually don't really care about what the label is anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there was a point when everyone was obsessed with like labeling things in order to, I guess we put things in boxes to understand them. And that completely, but then also that like corresponded with a moment where previously marginalized identities were becoming really commodified mm. and potentially like lucrative mm. in certain ways. Well, there they was are a commodification still. of identities. Mm. And that corresponded with a policing of identity. Mm, like who fits in and who doesn't. I've, that I've never mm. seen before, you know? And I wonder if there's some sort of overlap. Overlap in what way? What do you mean? Well, but it becomes the, the, the boundaries of identities become more fiercely p protected when they're commodities, mm. you know? Uh, as in like when you have something to gain from being in that box, then that's And when the numbers of people who can be in it are decreased. So what, what is the solution to that, do you think? Where do you think would be a better place to be if that's not, if that's the capitalization of identity, for example, where do you go from there that would, would be better for society? I mean, <laughs> do people, like, be better for society, like, to what, to what ends, you know? Um, like, so, okay, we, we just live in a, in, a, in a moment of, like, such pronounced, like neoliberal capitalism mm. that like the operating logic of that kind of like individualism and fierce competitiveness mm. has even like colonized like our sense of our sense of selves and mm. our sense of identity you know so what's the solution or what's what's an alternative to kind of like neoliberal neoliberal capitalist logic like something i've written about like quite extensively is like even our forms of kind of like activism are determined by kind of like capitalist imperatives. I was, was going to talk to you about exactly and, that. And, and when you look at like some of the people from, when you look at, um, you know, some of the thinkers, like Andrew Davis, for instance, the the activists and organizers that, um, 60s, 70s and 80s, um, they tend to be um, at the very least socialists. Mm. So, you know, their aims are about kind of collective liberation mm. rather than the promotion of the individual brand, mm. you know? Like activism, well, I don't know. It's, I feel like it's changing again. We are kind of start. we're starting to see more kind of like mass and collective organizing. Mm. But I think until very recently, there'd been this kind of capture of activism where it was all about the individual yeah. kind of influencer. Influencer activism. Yeah. But yeah. I think that... There is an awareness of the difference between like an actual activist and an influencer activist. And I think that, I think, um, so I think activism had kind of like, you know, fallen, fallen out of like um, favour. It wasn't really like, people weren't really talking about activists. Activists weren't really like, um, you know, people that were like high profile. And then I would say from this kind of like fourth wave of 
I don't know, fourth wave of feminism, the new wave of civil rights or whatever, from maybe like 2012, 2014 onwards, mm. we started to see the emergence of this very social media um, oriented influencer activist kind of person mm. emerging. But now I feel like there's kind of been like a backlash against mm. that and we're starting to actually see more um, uh, like... I guess people who are actually organizers, mm. you know, who are kind of like organizing community gr- leaders groups and of like, people, yeah. yeah, and like, yeah. And what do you? What would you say then? What is the difference between the effect of activism then, in terms of like Angela Davis's era, and activism now in a space where we're in such a voyeuristic era, like? It, you can't escape the fact that social media exists now. Mm-hmm. It, you can't be an activist and exist without it because if you are creating change and if you're making noise, most likely you're going to be caught on camera. Yeah, you're yeah, going to become yeah. at the forefront of something. And there's something about when you know you're being seen that maybe it changes in the way that you advocate. No, I think there's still uh, like a lot of scope for what activists can do. If you look at... Um, you know all the stuff recently well unfolding in the moment uh, at the moment with um you know the strikes like i th- i think the way activism or one of the ways that organizing can be most um powerful is actually around striking mm. because at the end of the day the 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 it has to stop the system. Is that what you're saying? Because it really, it all comes down to like capital and pro- and profit, right? Mm. Like that's what the kind of primary concern is. Is like is is profit and the generation of and the, the accumulation of like of 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 wealth. So any so you know do you know Boots Riley? I know the, the name. So he's like a, a black communist filmmaker. Okay. Um, he made um, the film Sorry to Bother You. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I watched that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I heard him. Um, I heard him in an interview speaking about. Uh, I think it was with Cornell West. Um, yeah, on the tightrope with Cornell West. He was talking about how um, protests and striking used to be. Um, it used to be kind of like workers mm. who were the people who would like go on strike or yeah. like kind of like protest, and then in the sixties it shifted more to being students. Mm. And with that shift to students, it started to be more about like um, symbolism and spectacle. Mm. And like, um, so with spectacle, with the, the you know, the media, um, like uh, filming or photographing these like student strikes. But he makes the point of like, who really cares if students strike? You know, it's just like, it's, it's symbolic because mm. if students don't go to, or protest rather, mm. if students aren't in their classes, yeah. like it doesn't yeah, really, yeah, yeah. What impact does that have? Whereas if workers like actually stop working, like mm. everything grinds grinds to a halt. Mm. So he talks about that kind of movement from organized kind of like labor mm. protests and striking to it becoming like more symbolic, more about the spectacle and with well, that like, movement I, to students. I guess when students are protesting, it it's like it's almost as like an addition to their life. Whereas if a worker's striking, they're probably striking because it actually is their livelihoods yeah, that yeah, are at stake yeah. at that point. And maybe if workers are striking, they're coming from a more working class background, where students historically are from a more middle class background. Yeah, yeah. So they, they have the choice yeah. to protest rather yeah. than they have the necessity to strike. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So it's a different angle. And one of the things that... Like, and young people are more sensationalized. So yeah, you're going to get more interesting coverage. You're going to get more interesting photos. Youth culture is yeah. much more commercial 
in Com- general. Yeah, 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 totally. And so th- I always think it's quite interesting when people say, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all about like the youth and the students. And you're like, oh, well, actually, there's, there's potentially like other groups that could mm. organise and it actually might be more, um, might be more like impactful. You know, there's a lot of things that are just kind of received wisdom responses that people have, but then when you hold them up to scrutiny, they don't necessarily, they don't necessarily, necessarily hold through. And one of the things that like race, the invention of race and the maintenance of the idea of there being a black race and a white race has been used so effectively to do is to actually prevent, um, you know, organization between workers of different races mm. who, were they to come together, mm. could actually, um, you know... Overthrow. Essentially, yeah. Um, but they, if, if you can create a system where they're more likely to fight each other over, and gatekeep certain jobs and industries um, around the um, kind of boundaries of race, rather than thinking from like a more class based perspective and thinking about how there's like a ruling class that, you know, oppress, exploits them both mm. to different degrees, of course. In, there, there's there's so many conquer. different instances, yeah. And even with the even when race is first in, the idea of a black race and a white race is first introduced and codified into law in colonial Barbados, it's actually after, you might have heard me talking about this before, I just find it so fascinating. Um, it's after a series of uprisings where indentured Irish um, and kidnapped Africans on uh, plantations in Barbados, mm. you know, like come together and fight the English landlords who they see as a common enemy. But once these slave codes were brought in, I think the first one was in 1661, that kind of started to disseminate the idea of a white race that was like, you know, just um, that was inherently su- superior. Mm. Um, and the idea of like racial difference was not just introduced, but like, codified into law whereby anybody that came to be known as white you know had access to protection mm. and rights under the law which people that came to be white known privilege. as <laughs> the, oh my god the, 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 the OG like white privilege like literally like, yeah, enshrined, yeah. <laughs> enshrined, enshrined in law and then the people actually they weren't called black at the time the the lang- the, the word used is is negro quote unquote, um, but the people that came to be defined as that, you know, lost any, like, they, they just have no recourse right. to any yeah. protection under the law or even to like, you mm. know, kind of being recognized so as sub-hu- human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so one of the things that that did was start to, you know, like justify the enslavement of, um, of, of Africans and people of African descent. But it also prevented these, uh, I guess, these moments of like recognition and solidarity and coalition mm. that could exist between maybe like indentured Europeans and enslaved Africans. And then if we're bringing those ideas of how that started, the construction of race and like the ways in which divide and conquer as like a really simple concept has been used throughout Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. in order to separate people of like different oppressed groups from the the group, the smaller, the minority that has the most power. Um, And then we look at like protests today. um, Would you say that that is still running through? Oh my god, completely. Yeah. Like completely. It's it's so successful, mm. you know. It's been used like um since then um to manipulate people against acting in their best interests, to prevent people from seeing that um to to basically like shift the blame on uh, so the kind of diminished life opportunities that people have as a result of, you know, the 
ruling class's exploitation of them mm. gets um, obscured and people's anger and ire is, um, you know, put onto like immigrants or onto like black people or onto like basically these kind of like racialized mm. other, uh, othered people rather than actually looking at like the 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 true source of like and I guess also internalized in terms of like within the black community as well in all the like different segments of colorism of like the the differentiation of like Caribbean and African and especially like in British culture and in especially in London when I was growing up there was no solidarity among black people of different countries even to the point mm-hmm. of like Jamaica and St Lucia mm-hmm. like they're the biggest island and they're the most like culturally influential mm-hmm. so there was like this like rivalry amongst the islands even like as a kid yeah, yeah and it's yeah. so interesting how that plays out probably from the beginning of of those ideas being constructed yeah that's interesting about Britain like I didn't grow up here um yeah because I, I don't know how it would be different in um Ireland. well there was no black people so like, <laughs> you're like was it was just me <laughs> me and Samantha mum um so yeah no, there was no black people like literally there was no black people that's like, crazy if I saw a black person it was like an event um it was like an event <laughs> um but I spent the first few years of my life in Atlanta um mm. like in like an entirely black environment like where I just didn't know apart from my mum I just wasn't around like white people at all um and I was back in America for a few months like this year and um I do find like African-American culture like way more feels like there's way more solidarity and sorority and fraternity and like if I'm walking down the street and it's like a really white neighborhood it's just a really white environment like you know whatever black person I walk past will probably say hi or like yeah yeah. like you know give some form of like recognition but is that to some extent because we have more of an understanding of our like historical identity in the UK because a lot of African Americans in America were robbed of knowing where exactly they were from yeah I feel like maybe they have more of a cohesive culture Mm like amongst themselves rather than being here and being from like lots of different parts of the world you know and I feel like the extremity of what they've experienced there has forged kind of like deeper bonds of solidarity Mm. amongst them yeah because it's like there was full-on segregation there Mm. like until like I moved like my we were there in like late 70s early 80s and I mean what, 11 years before that 12 years before that there was like full-on segregation mm. you know it's like it's really yeah yeah it's really recent it's really recent and even when it like is legally you know ended hundreds of years aren't just like erased because the law has changed like you know um Amer- america depending particularly on what part you're in but it still is very much Still feels like really segregated yeah oh totally totally but I, mean, I would say that we're we 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 just present ours in a different way here oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's very it is very different here but the spatial segregation mm. of america i totally is, agree is, the is geographical just, yeah use yeah totally um it's funny because when i was on my way here and i i was on the phone to my dad and just talking about like who i was I'm going to be speaking to and and what we'd be speaking about oh because I think I mentioned the name of your book don't touch my hair and then he was talking about how people would touch his hair and he'd be like what are you doing and it's so interesting hearing someone of that generation 
talk about it in the way that he would talk about it mm-hmm. compared to how he talk about it now. Um, and the, like, there's so much more of an understanding now. But his, I think obviously generations have different perspectives to how they deal with like their oppression. But it was very much like to him, he's like, well, they'd never seen a black person before. Mm-hmm. So it was almost that like ignorant curiosity. And, and when you were talking about what white people can do next and allyship and the conversation around how we advocate for others and, and almost like you were saying at one point you were, you were talking about how um, you didn't like the framing of the conversation. Is there an element of like being more compassionate to the way that we interact with people if, if it's coming from a misunderstanding, like if where the intention is? It's interesting because certainly like when I was growing up, I was very much like that person, like I was definitely the first only or only black person that like lots of people had ever seen. Mm. Like I know because like they told me and also because there wasn't black people like in the country at that time. There was like obviously there was like a handful, but it was like a 99.9% white country. And there were two things going on. So it was coming from a place of just kind of like ignorance and fascination with the Mm. unknown but it wasn't it also wasn't as innocent as that Mm. there was definitely the importation so even though I I I always find it really interesting even though there was like the absence of black people in the country there was very much the presence of very negative ideas about Mm. black people so those ideas had definitely been like you know kind of imported Mm. and quite like internalized and like fetishization yeah 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 like yeah fetishization and a lot of a lot of the racism was like like very sexualized Mm. um uh as well i mean a lot of it was like it it, it showed up in like (laughs) many many different ways um but yeah like a lot of it was just like yeah ignorance however like I guess like the, the 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 frequency of it, it was like a defining like m- me being black was like a defining characteristic of like my of your identity of my of my existence yeah and um, and of my experience and it's quite hard like when you're experiencing that to be like oh well it just comes from a place of ignorance it's Mm. okay and also another thing that I found like so difficult was just like the sheer level of like isolation because there was like literally nobody to to have to discuss it yeah 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 yeah. do you know what I mean it was literally it was just apart from your family I guess well no not really because like my siblings are way younger than me um my mum is white my dad had gone back to Nigeria so yeah, there so was, was still nobody just, else okay. that was really... And that must have felt yeah. really isolating. Super isolating. I made a black friend when I was like 14. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I saw her at a disco and she had... Like, I, saw, I saw her at a disco. This is like, it was like crazy. Like I saw a black girl at the disco. And, You're um, like, where did you come from? Yeah, like, and she had just moved to Ireland. Oh really? Yeah, she was from... Um, where was she from? She was from Birmingham or Wolverhampton. She was Jamaican. And her mum had just married an Irish man, had remarried an Irishman, so they'd moved to Ireland. Mm. And I saw her and I just made a beeline for her. She also had box braids. And I was just like, oh my God, like hook me up. Like my hair was like a mess. I was just like, who did that? <laughs> and she was just like, oh yeah, my mum does my hair. So we became friends and my mum started like braiding my hair. Um, but yeah, that's how um, that's how rare black people were. Like mm. if you saw another one, you'd be like. <gasps> and I guess that is that where you're interested in like moving into space and writing the books you've written and studying it's like trying to understand who you are because you didn't have the people around you to well i i also think it's because the first kind of five years or so of my life were so black like mm. we're, it, so in atlanta it wasn't even like an environment like london that's like multicultural it was just black it was just black mm. so i think like my my I was, so you've had quite a polarized yeah. upbringing 
for someone who doesn't like to see like in binaries <laughs> yeah right like um and i think it was the the extremity of moving from like atlanta to ireland so a really black place to like a really white place mm. nowhere that was like kind of a mixed or multicultural place and i think i was i think that i really like romanticized like atlanta and so i was always like oh as soon as i finish school i'm gonna like mm. i'm gonna go um, I'm going to like leave Ireland and go somewhere where everyone's black. I actually really didn't want to come to London. Like London was so like not black enough for me. Um, I'd never met like Trustafarians before. I'd never met like rich oh, white people. I was like, what's that? No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I never met rich white people that had like dread, that had mm. like locks and like Well, I guess with Irish people, they're not <laughs> engaging in black culture in the same way if there are no black people there. Yeah, but also like the, the, the I guess I just never met those kind of posh like white crusty people before mm. that really were in so ass so in the late nineties. And I was just like, Oh my God, like I was, cause I was like, okay, so I went to do black studies in Spelman and then I got in, but I couldn't afford like the international fees and mm. I didn't get a scholarship. So, so ass was like my kind of plan B get mm. out of Dodge and I was doing African studies and I assumed there'd be some sort of black student life. There wasn't really. So I just led very like there. There was like a really like massive like R and B and hip hop like um like club scene in London at that time. So that was just where I like spent most of my time. That was yeah. that that was, so yeah. When you say it depends where you are in London, that was very well, you have black. to find social world yeah. was, was very black, but it's still like um. It has to be carefully selected spaces as but opposed to somewhere like Atlanta, where it's just no matter where you go, everyone. Yeah, black, you know, whatever scene you're into. What does allyship mean to you today? So this the subheading of my book, What White People Can Do Next, is from allyship to coalition. Mm. So I'm actually kind of like challenging the idea of allyship and instead advocating for like coalition, whereby um, people identify the fact that most of us, to very different degrees, but most people have, and I mean, like, look at the state of like society at the moment. Most people have, you know, diminished life opportunities because mm. of like the system that we live under. So it's about seeing how it's actually like in your interest to try and change things, not just because you're trying to help. So when I was looking at the, the literature around allyship, when I was writing the book, I saw loads of references to like the ally and the victim. And mm. I was like, a lot of allyship to do with race anyway, reinforces this kind of white savior dynamic. And I think a lot of the people that seemed to be quite like aroused by like being an ally, it was like really performative. And it was really about performing, being like a good person. And mm. like all of these things that I found like, and this, yeah, this strong strand of like kind of white saviorism. And one of my favorite thinkers is this like black American critic, um, liter no, yeah, I guess critic, thinker, a philosopher called Fred Moten. Mm. And he has this um, quote that I use in the book that I like use all the time. And it's just like, um, and I think this speaks to allyship really well. He's just like, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. I just need you to recognize that this shit is killing you too, however much more softly, you stupid motherfucker. And I'm just like, yes, that's it, right? Because like, basically we live in a system that is actually like, destroying the world everybody i think everybody needs to understand that things have to be done like very very differently mm. not because i need like some like well-intentioned white person to help me mm. 
but because they need to recognize that they need to fucking save themselves mm. as well because this is like it feels it's like a group project yeah it's a group project, <laughs> it's a group project. <laughs> so i would advocate for coalition mm. over allyship and i guess that 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 goes across everything because i feel like i would be having that same conversation with men yeah and, and men who call themselves feminists or, or are feminists it's that idea of it not it will also liberate them. They are also, you know, they're also like victimized by patriarchy, mm. not to the same extent or in the same way as a woman mm. is, but it would also be liberatory for them to mm. like, to shirk off like the oppressive nature of that system, you know? Question I've been asking everyone, what is your unique power? Gosh. Okay, so I, 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 act, I think I have quite like, um, I think I have quite an unusual perspective. Um, I think like being black and Irish and particularly like the age that I am, because there's there a younger generation of people that are black are, are black and Irish. There's like a visible like black Irish population in a way that there wasn't when I was um like until I left until I left the country in my teens. Um, so I actually think I have a perspective that like not many other people have have had that's like quite unique that I used to hate because I feel I felt like I just wasn't a legitimate yeah. I felt like it all you can't be black and Irish like I was I, I was like this not, it's so not legitimate like I'm not a legitimate yeah. person <laughs> you can't look like me and sound like this my accent sounds a lot less Irish than it used to and I was just like no it doesn't make sense I've never like there's just it's not legitimate um but now actually seeing the power of that and I also think what else can I do the power of your perspective the power of my perspective and then also I feel like the way my brain works I can like I can I can see patterns between things that um maybe are not immediately apparent to other people um that kind of yeah and maybe that's because the way things are like in like interconnected and it and maybe that's because you've felt like an outsider I think Partially it's that, and then I think I'm probably like neurodivergent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a useful way to have a different perspective on the world. (laughs) Just waiting for that diagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) Any doctors out there? Let me know. (laughs) After listening to this, (laughs) yeah, they're both. Um, I will say. Oh, I will just say quickly though about empowerment. I felt that there were quite contradictory things like going on recently. In that, um, another thing I write about in what white people can do next is um, a lot of the allyship discourse that I was seeing in kind of liberal uh, mainstream spaces was actually like really patronizing I felt Mm. like to me but also really patronizing to the prospective ally and I went back you know all of this stuff that that like oh only certain people you don't get to speak and you need to stay in your lane and you can't talk on that only I can talk on that Mm. I'm like that's really like contradictory to this uh simultaneously running narrative of like empowerment mm. but actually but you can't be empowered only i can in, be empowered. In, in this way and then i went back to the black panthers um and i was thinking about in contrast to how i was seeing allyship now being being framed and and you know this very like stay in your lane um kind of narrative there's another phrase that i'm trying to think of that's not stay in your lane anyway um if you look at so the black panthers huey newton was asked what could white people do and he was like form the white panthers right and so this group this group of white panthers formed and then if you look at it's not a racist group (laughs) no 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 it's it's a really radical like (laughs) anti-racist group um 
But if you look at their demands, they're like really assertive and they're assertive in ways that, you know, they're demanding health care. They're, demand, they're, they're making these demands that would immediately make their lives better, but would also make, you know, like minoritized and oppressed people's lives better. And it's so assertive and it's so different to that kind of groveling um, tone that I saw in mm. a lot of allyship today, where it's just these people like, abjecting themselves and being just like you know kind of like this hand wringing like liberal guilt where mm. they're too where they're not thinking critically you know yeah. where they're just repeating these mantras that they don't even well they're not understand seeing how it applies to them half really the time seeing. but then i feel like that kind of allyship was also being demanded of them mm. if they said anything that was outside this kind of like rigid and narrow script it's just like you know then then they're like problematic or whatever and i just found like um yeah i just went back to the black panthers and i was just very different to what we're we are kind of demanding from our ally well not all of us but people and i guess yeah maybe it's a process and maybe we have a a wider awareness now because everything's so instant and everything's recorded and everything's so like it happens in front of you and maybe it wouldn't have been like that with in the time of the Black Panthers like we'll get to that process where allyship or coalition is more useful but maybe the the, the point of like pointing fingers and and the the rebalance of power has to go through that process of like someone has to feel uncomfortable and someone has someone else has to be asserting themselves yeah yeah, yeah, and then you get to the point where you have the conversation and but that's that's the thing like there really does need to be a rebalance of power and that's why like in the book i talk more about like a redistribution of resources Mm. rather than these one-on-one like interpersonal grievances about Mm. like like so basically like calling out the privilege of an individual white person right Um, or chastising an individual white person about their privilege does not create the the necess does not um what do you call it i wanted to focus more on said and how on how whiteness and like class or how whiteness and the 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 consolidation or acquisition of wealth you know correlate and what actual policies we could bring into Mm. place that would redistribute resources Mm. in ways that you know um make the world more equitable if all of the bandwidth is is it has to happen like if all the bandwidth is taken up by individuals just calling each other out Mm. and saying that's what you mean like i'm just like i don't know what that achieves beyond okay so i think the point i'm trying to make is because so much of this happens online Mm. and Online spaces are ones in which um, dissent, no, not dissent, in which um, kind of calling people out is um, is inc- is incentivized. Mm. Um, you can amass more um, likes and you know followers if you were kind of you know it's like capital. If you're more reactionary, if it's exactly, more- exactly. So I think a lot of what I was seeing wasn't strategic, but it was more about calling this person out to kind of create a contro- controversy mm. over that rather than actually thinking about, look at the way race and like resources, um, you know, uh, intersect in this country. And how could we think about redistributing that? I was hardly seeing any, I didn't really see anyone talking about that, you know, it was more. Yeah. About- well, I think that there's an element of like when you're having those interpersonal conversations or calling people out, 
that's almost like a transference of power in a small way. It's like when I felt like I've been powerless, now I get to tell you in a space where it's allowed yeah. that the way that in which you made me feel powerless and now you're in the, you know, it changes the balance. I think if there are those white people that are being called out on things that maybe they didn't acknowledge before, mm-hmm. maybe they will also contribute to creating that change. And it's not something that black people feel like they have to do. You don't agree. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. It's, it's not. It's not that I don't agree. I, I do agree. I just think the way these dynamics played out on social media, they're more performative. It's just performative. Yeah, it's yeah. performative. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think there needs to be like a real, like um, a, a deep understanding in this country of this country. For example, like it's let's talk about this country um, of like you know the history of like imperialism and the history of empire and like what that means Mm. and the um, education so yeah and I think but I think what I was seeing on happening on social media was I don't think I was necessarily seeing um you know people I saw white people saying stuff and I was just like I don't think they understand why they're saying it this is just performative because Mm. there's a kind of demand that they say something and now that two years have passed and very little has changed Mm. I think we see how ineffective Mm. those strategies were Mm. so that's why I think that the emphasis needs to be on stuff that is more about like a transformation of social relations Mm. and I feel like that's kind of like harder um, less immediately rewarding work that doesn't lend itself so easily to an instant applause online. To getting those followers. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, do you yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah, I think that I just and maybe like, that plays into maintaining the system of oppression. Yeah, totally. I get what you mean. Yeah. So it's not that it's not. I, I I'm very I'm I'm very aware of the. Um, advantages that the racialized advantages that come with whiteness i would just like the understanding of those to happen to be happening at a deeper level where people are actually internalizing Mm. that information rather than just you know kind of yeah repeating these like meaningless mantras or fucking like posting black boxes or whatever was happening (laughs) so in that song where i'm saying we could change this if we tried what we really mean is actual like critical thinking race theory at school level education yeah like, that would change <laughs> that would change things if we tried but i think a lot of people probably wouldn't want to see that happening and that would feel very radical but maybe we'll get to a point where where that is the norm and maybe that well hopefully that's soon <laughs> is that to finish on a positive <laughs> note <laughs> no i think we will i think we will get to that point i think that's why we're we have, here we have <laughs> yes where? Emma here <laughs> I think that's why we're having these conversations I think young people today and um, like are so different to the generations before them and I, I do I do believe like really young people from like the age of like 10 years old have a completely different perspective to to identity and to the constructions that were naturalized for us mm-hmm. growing up throughout the generations I think they see nuance in a different way and when they're our age the conversation the i think will be exist. so different <laughs> possibly <laughs> if everybody won't recycle then maybe <laughs> anyway um thank you so much for, for being on you're welcome thanks for the conversation <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the power in us a podcast based all around the topics of my debut album if you love what you heard please subscribe and tune in wherever you get your podcasts big love everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.